You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Global Institute. Welcome to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Simon London, an editor with McKinsey Publishing. For a number of years, McKinsey has been researching the role of women in business and management. But a recent report from the McKinsey Global Institute takes this research agenda in an interesting new direction by asking the question, what is the cost of gender inequality to the global economy? Or, looked at the other way, how much economic potential could be unlocked if women participated in the workforce on an equal footing with men? To discuss the research and the answers to these questions, I'm joined today by two of the report's authors. Jonathan Wetzel is a McKinsey Global Institute director based in Shanghai. Thank you for joining us today, Jonathan. You're welcome. And joining us from Mumbai is Anu Madgavkar, a senior fellow with the McKinsey Global Institute. Welcome, Anu. Thanks, Simon. It's great to be here. Good. Okay, so let's start. Jonathan, I'll put this one to you if you don't mind. Um... Why did the McKinsey Global Institute undertake this research? You know, why is it important to understand or think about gender equality as an economic issue as well as a ethical issue? Well, Simon, I suppose we wanted to, first of all, understand uh, the importance of this econo- of the economic importance of the issue. So we couldn't start off by saying it was important until we had actually measured it and quantified it, and that is essentially the, the starting point, was to say, here, we know this is a big social challenge. It's a, it's a topic of our times. It's something that we've been doing, we've been paying attention to in the private sector for some time, but we don't actually know, uh, relative to anything else, how big an opportunity is. And that was the purpose of doing the research initially, was simply to get our hands around how big a deal is this. And from that, to also try to create what we like to call a, a document of record, uh, something that can be useful for policymakers as well as executives uh, to understand the dimensions of the issue, the size of the opportunity, and what to do about it. I think that it will create, first of all, it, it does allow us to say uh, economically what's the size of the prize. And I think what we've shown is that it is a very large prize. And it's a very large prize not only in the theoretical sense that this is what would happen if we were one to one. Uh, but in the practical sense of here's what countries are actually doing. And so if one was simply to adopt best practice, it's a $12 trillion opportunity. So that should be motivation enough in a world that's seeking growth uh, to see what can one do to achieve that goal. Uh, so that, you know, in a sense is independent of the social uh, and human rights aspects of the challenge, which of course are incredibly important as well. I mean, in that dimension, what we tried to do was understand for each of those human rights, you know, how well are we doing and what is it related to? Uh, specifically, how is it related to the economic opportunity, whether we're talking about violence or we're talking about access to finance or education? Uh, these things are all in and of themselves, of course, incredibly important issues. Uh, but we also just wanted to be able to be able to say, how do they link to that economic opportunity as well? And we did find some interesting linkages. Fantastic. So I'll come to you, Anu. Uh, if you don't mind, you were in the engine room of this research for, for many months of your life. Just give us an overview of the research that the team undertook here. Uh, what, what did we look at and how did we go about it? 
So I think uh, what we tried to do in this study was to uh, look at this issue, which is both uh, an economic issue as well as an ethical one, but to look at it in the broadest and most comprehensive way possible. Uh, and we started by uh, setting our agenda to look at over uh, about 95 countries, which accounted for over 90% of world GDP as well as uh, the world's population of women. Uh, and just in terms of its geographic coverage, I think this is one of the most comprehensive studies of its kind. We also adopted a very broad lens to thinking about gender equality. So we had uh, 15 indicators that cut across both the economic aspects of gender equality as well as the social aspects of gender equality. Uh, on the economic front, we explored various dimensions of labor force participation, job quality, the wage gap, uh, women in leadership and so on. And then on the social aspect, we covered uh, three broad categories. And one of them was really about things that enable economic opportunity, but are also fundamental social rights. Uh, and these are things like education and access to um, healthcare, uh, access to financial services, and then digital or technology inclusion. Uh, and all of these are really important because they are also key enablers for economic potential and economic value creation by women. Uh, another important bucket that we looked at was really around legal protection um, and political representation of women versus men and really trying to understand what the gaps are there. Uh, and then finally, we looked at a bucket that was much more core and fundamental to the rights of women. And this is really around physical security and autonomy. Uh, where we covered issues that ranged from um, the sex ratio at birth to child marriage and then finally to violence against women. And the reason we uh, scanned the landscape so broadly was really because we did feel that many of these issues are strongly interrelated, that there is value in actually um, kind of using the data and facts to highlight some of these interconnections and then focus the world's attention on the biggest gaps, which might also be some of the biggest catalysts for moving the world forward in terms of achieving the economic potential that we size. So you can't think about gender equality purely in economic terms. Uh, women are part of society as much as they are part of the economy. You can't really segregate the two. Uh, and therefore, it is important to have this kind of uh, broad lens as you think about both aspects of the issue. Uh, I would guess that uh, just having a team gather that data, scrub that data, figure out what's comparable across different countries and what's not was, uh, was a pretty major exercise in itself. I think this is itself one big contribution of this work to be a sort of reference point of really useful information for multiple practitioners or experts who are looking at this from various angles. Uh, and I have to say that in deciding to cover 95 countries, one of the constraints was indeed data availability. We would have, of course, liked to cover even more countries, but we did want to be sure that we had good data for the countries that were in our study. Uh, and across our 15 indicators, I, I do think for a majority of these countries, we ended up with uh, harmonized and you know comparable data for most of these indicators. There, were, there are a couple of indicators which were a little more tricky um, and we would actually, we've highlighted this in the work that it's important to think about global investments to further data collection in these areas. So for example, an indicator such as the wage gap, which attempts to measure uh, whether there is a difference and what that difference is 
between the wage paid to a woman worker and a man worker or a male worker for exactly the same quality of work. And that's a really hard, uh, you know, data-based indicator to track. And we ended up using a survey and uh, what we reflect is more the perception of wage gap. So that's one area that we think merits a lot more research effort and data collection effort. Um, so uh, another one actually which is extremely important is the extent of unpaid care work that women do. There are not many studies that globally measure this or benchmark it, but it's one of the most central and pivotal gender equality indicators when it comes to you know, unlocking the, the economic value of women. So, Jonathan, um, maybe you could segue from that to give us uh, an overview of the results. Um, once we'd collected the data and we'd, we'd crunched the numbers, what did we find about the size of the economic opportunity here? Well, two numbers to keep in mind, uh, 28 and 12. Uh, 28 trillion is the theoretical opportunity. This is if all men and women worked equally uh, participated equally in the labor force, worked the same number of hours, and had participated in the same sectors at the same rates, uh, the economic opportunity would be $28 trillion. But that's a theoretical number, assuming everything was exactly the same between men and women. And uh, as a result, people would say, well, that's not very realistic, is it? So what we then did was we divided the world into regions to be able to say, let's compare like countries with like countries, uh, apples with apples, if you will. And then we say, within each of those regions, what is actually going on? Uh, which countries are getting closer to uh, equal participation? And, uh, and then we compared countries within those regions. And that number, when we add it all up and say, what's the difference between the best countries and the worst countries? That's 12 trillion, uh, which is an equally very importantly big number. Uh, and I think those, those two numbers, 28 and 12, uh, sort of bound the possibilities for the size of the prize. Uh, that's that's the calculation we went through. Twelve trillion dollars in itself uh, is an extremely large number, but also a very abstract number. Uh, when you're talking about this to people, uh, what does that compare to? How do you sort of uh, sort of bring it into focus? Uh, well, twenty-eight trillion is twenty-six percent of the annual GDP, global GDP. Uh, 12 trillion gets you to about 10%. Uh, so 10% of G global GDP, any way you shake it, is a big number in a world which, uh, where global GDP grows at, whatever grows at, between 1% or 2% a year uh, if, we're, if we're in a good, good year. So you know, 10 times the annual growth rate of the, of the world is not a bad number to go for. Uh, either way, it says this is one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, economic opportunity to come out of simply changing our our society. So this is uh, this is this is things that we actually know how to do. Uh, so thank you, Jonathan. That that's fascinating. I wonder, Anu, could you just tell us a little bit about some of the regional differences? Where is the economic potential uh, greatest? What is interesting in terms of the regional complexion of uh, of, of of let's say the potential uh, economic prize is that even in the best in region scenario, which is sort of the more achievable or the more uh, realistic scenario, if you will. Uh, even here, you have India coming in at about 16% uh, of additional GDP that it could uh, generate simply by uh, achieving the fastest improving rates that it's seeing in its region. Uh, and then you have Latin America actually coming in as the next largest relative potential at about 14%. 
simply because uh, some countries in Latin America have actually accelerated on closing the gender gap quite well. And if all countries emulated that, you would actually have a very sizable impact coming in in Latin America as well. Even countries that think of themselves as uh, pretty well advanced and progressive on these issues, whether it's uh, the US or some European countries, it sounds like actually this is a big economic opportunity. So absolutely. And if you think about, the, again, the Western region scenario, I think countries in Western Europe and North America would actually have um, almost one percentage point of additional GDP growth that this opportunity represents. Uh, which is really large compared to their business as usual GDP growth. Um, and I think the composition or the value drivers vary for some of these more advanced economies. It's less about labor force participation rate because a lot of women do actually work, but it's a little bit more about closing the gender gap in terms of the hours that they work relative to men. And also most importantly, closing the gender gap in terms of average productivity because of the sectors and kinds of work that women are engaged in versus men. So there are multiple ways to achieve this prize, but yes, even in you know, richer, more developed economies, this could be um, 0.75 to one percentage point of GDP incrementally every year. So that's interesting, Anu, the, the differences between uh, different countries uh, and the size of the prize. One thing it brings to mind for me is um, a question about economic development. I mean, it sounds like this gender gap will naturally, in the normal course of economic development, um, the gender gap will decline as economies become more wealthy. Um, maybe that's something we could put to you, Jonathan. Um, won't this just sort of naturally take care of itself? Well, uh, perhaps in the fullness of time, many of the indicators we've seen do have a correlation with economic development, with uh, income per capita, and particularly with urbanization. Uh, but some don't. And in any case, the correlation is, uh, is a moderate one, and it takes a long time. Uh, as a result, what we were looking for is saying, if we want to capture this gap in the, in, in the next 10 years, we shouldn't just rely on economic development. We should see what can we do to accelerate the process. Uh, where and particularly where are the indicators that are not correlated with economic development because it's a reality that even in some economically developed areas there's still a long way to go to achieve gender parity so economic development can't be the whole answer there have to be some other factors but that's what we looked at so you know what are the other factors four factors that uh, that I can see are first of all uh, that we that we identified are the education financial and digital inclusion legal protections, and uh, the issue of unpaid work. Uh, and each of them is important in its own way. Uh, education obviously creates the access to opportunities, and without that, we don't have the opportunity, particularly to adjust the, sk the, the skill mix, the, the sectors that women participate in compared to men. It's often conditioned by their access to education. Uh, secondly, financial and digital inclusion, which really go together. If you don't have access to capital, it's, again, it's hard to invest in oneself, uh, let alone to build a business. And so the uh, opportunity to uh, reduce the number of hours worked in low-paid versus high-paid uh, professions, this is often conditioned by the access to finance and, and technology. Legal protections. This is astonishing, is particularly in some advanced countries, how 
the lack of legal protection has led to a high incidence of domestic violence and violence against women in general. And so that, you know, again, conditions the opportunities that women have to achieve true uh, participation in the workforce. And that, so legal protection stands by itself as a very large category of opportunity that could be used to accelerate progress. And finally, the issue of unpaid work. And uh, as we all know, with anything that is free, we tend to waste it. <laughs> Uh, and uh, the, uh, the lack of such value placed on the role uh, that is being played by women in caregiving roles in particular, uh, but any type of unpaid work. Uh, this has led to, again, an inability of women to participate in the workforce to capture that economic opportunity at, uh, at the same levels at which men do. Uh, so those four things, I think, are the, the keys to accelerating progress above and beyond what economic development and urbanization will no doubt deliver over time. So the, the issue of unpaid work is, uh, is interesting. What's our assumption in the report if uh, more women come into the paid labor force? Um, what happens to the unpaid work? Are we assuming that men will take on a greater burden and therefore work fewer hours? Or are we assuming that at least uh, some of that work, whether it's childcare or caring for relatives or, or, or domestic chores, uh, are marketized, if you like, they're sort of bought into the, the paid economy and therefore countable as, as GDP? How do we look at that uh, in the numbers as we crunch them? Well, again, we're looking at the best in region scenario, and so we're looking at what actually is happening. And I think the answer is a little bit of both. Uh, that there is uh, certainly a, a more equal sharing of the of work uh, as the opportunity cost of doing that unpaid work uh, is starting to become more real. So people start to think about how can they share it, but they also start to think about how can they mitigate uh, the need to have it. And so whether we're talking about daycare uh, on, a, on a community basis or we're talking about better transport so that if you look at who uses public transport, it's women. <laughs> and they're running around to the shop every day and they're taking grandma to her appointment and they're taking the kids to this thing and that. And so like if you don't have a decent public transit system, that takes a very, very long time. <laughs> and so simply, in, you know, for society to say, hey, we actually need to help everybody, you know, use their time better. And to do that, we're prepared to invest in a bus stop. Uh, or, you know, we're prepared to invest in a daycare facility. That also is a way of saying, okay, unpaid care work is something that is actually a drag on the opportunities creation for society. Let's get in there and do something. Let's invest to do something about it. That's a, that, that also happens a lot. And again, so it's it's we're looking at how this pans out at the local country level, and every country has its own particular set of characteristics. So we wouldn't say that there's one right or wrong, but we're saying that there is a path towards the valuation of unpaid care work, which leads to social change and in turn to economic opportunity. Anu, uh, one of the uh, interesting things in the report for me was the, um, the gender parity score. Um, as I understand it, this takes uh, the 15 uh, indicators of gender equality that you mentioned earlier and tries to boil them down into a, a single number that people can discuss, debate, compare, uh, and so on. Just take us through a little bit. What, what is the gender parity score, the GPS? Uh, how do we calculate it and what's it there for? So as we thought about um, all of these indicators and this whole broad landscape of gender inequality, we did think that it was important and quite useful to boil this down into one measure that can help a country very succinctly gauge where it is on the journey towards uh, gender parity. 
so what we did is we uh, defined on a scale that goes from zero to one uh, a sort of uh, you know measure of aggregate gender parity where one represents full parity and zero represents uh, absence of parity and then we constructed this score for each country in which for each of the elements along our 15 indicators we were able to uh, plot where exactly this country is on that zero to one scale uh, and then we aggregated that into one combined measure uh, trying to take care of uh, not allowing for too much of compensating um, uh, effects so for example if you outperformed on education but you were really appalling in terms of the healthcare gender gap then we didn't allow for too much of you know cancelling out of the bad effect by the good effect uh, so with some of those controls we think what we have is a very credible sort of uh, uh, almost a, a quantitative roadmap for a country and we found that uh, most countries around the world or most regions because we aggregated this into regional scores as well uh, so most all of the regions have gender parity scores that range from a low of uh, 0.44 which is South Asia excluding India uh, all the way to a high of about 0.74 which is uh, the North America region what's interesting about that is that even the best performing region therefore uh, does have significant gender gaps on many of these elements uh, and is not as high as let's say a 0.8 or a 0.9 which would be you know truly within shouting distance of uh, of, of full gender parity at least on these indicators uh, there is there is some distance to traverse for all of these countries let's just take this to a uh, a slightly more personal level we're, we're talking uh, a lot here at the level of um, large numbers trillions of dollars um, you know policy and other levers that could be pulled I wonder Anu if we could start with you is there one thing during the course of this research that you've come to understand at a, a sort of deeper and more personal level if you just had to put your finger on one thing what would it what would it be I think the, the whole issue of the physical security and autonomy of women was not uh, necessarily the first issue that uh, jumped to my mind as we thought about you know, what would it take for women to achieve their full economic potential. Uh, and, and this is because uh, this is an issue that has actually uh, come, to, uh, come to sort of occupy a prominent place in the public consciousness of women in a bunch of countries, including India. Uh, but the link between this and other aspects of gender equality uh, were not something that was very clear to me. I think what the research really highlighted is some very fascinating aspects about this whole issue. Uh, one is, I think, the importance of um, a very deep-rooted attitudes and mindsets about women that influence uh, a lot of these gender gaps. Uh, and, and we looked at violence against women in terms of uh, intimate partner violence as a proxy indicator across our 95 countries. And what we found is that this is actually a globally pervasive issue. This is not an issue that uh, you know, vanishes as countries become more economically developed or even as education levels advance. Uh, this is much deeper than that, and this is a lot about how, uh, you know, uh, uh, a woman's role and a woman's value is perceived in society, uh, in the family that she lives in, uh, not just by men, but by other women as well. So, for example, older women in, in the home or 
you know, even mothers in some cases. We looked at violence also in terms of the entire life cycle, which is violence that occurs, um, uh, you know, even before birth or in infancy, which is all about selective abortion and female infanticide. Uh, and then violence that occurs uh, with young girls in the form of child marriage, which is a form of, you know, breaking down of physical integrity and really loss of control over your own body. Uh, and, and these are really fascinating issues because they're so closely interrelated with other elements of the gender gap, like uh, access to education, which in turn are important enablers for economic potential. So it's really hard when you look at a community, it's really hard to disaggregate all of these issues and say this is a, this is a violence issue and then there is another issue which is an education issue and a third issue which is about you know the ability of women to uh, be financially independent. They're actually quite interlinked and some of the most successful interventions that we studied and reviewed in the course of this research are those that weave together all these themes uh, and try and address some of these mindsets at a very basic level. Jonathan, maybe I can put that same original question to you. Is, is there one thing that you'd pinpoint that you've learned from doing this research that uh, really speaks to you personally? Well, I would echo what Anu had said about domestic violence and violence against women. It's uh, it's kind of appalling to think about that as being a you know a endemic issue in, in countries where there's clearly uh, you know a wealth of uh, a wealth of citizenry around and wealth of opportunity. That still at this level we have things that are you know violations of basic human rights going on every day at, at levels which essentially are holding back. Uh, countries from achieving uh, economic opportunity. So that was that was for me a, a quite uh, you know disappointing finding, but one which creates, in the sense, uh, an urgency, a burning platform for change. Uh, on the other hand, I would say that you know the other the, the positive side that uh, the thing I found most encouraging about this was that first of all that it was the desire to engage. Uh, from all sectors of society, a recognition that this wasn't a government alone kind of problem, that this was an opportunity for corporations, for companies, executives, and their, in their personal and their professional capacities to uh, achieve an economic goal, but one which would also change society. And as we looked at all of these interventions, uh, the 75 plus that we cataloged, we did not find a single one uh, where it wouldn't be better off by having the collaboration between government, public and private sector. And for that matter, social organizations working together would, would reach a, a better outcome. Uh, so I think that was uh, that was quite encouraging to see that this actually does create an opportunity for convening of society, not simply for delegating it to one, one party or the other. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Anu, for joining us from Mumbai. Thank you, Jonathan, for joining us from Shanghai. Thank you very much, Simon. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Simon. And uh, for anybody listening to this podcast who wants to learn more, uh, please go to mckinsey.com, uh, where you'll find the McKinsey Global Institute uh, report, The Power of Parity, uh, and a lot of work from our in-house economic think tank. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.